Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Whisperer in Darkness by H. P. Lovecraft. Three. Toward the end of June, the phonograph record came, shipped from Brattleboro, since Akeley was unwilling to trust conditions on the branch line north of there. He had begun to feel an increased sense of espionage, aggravated by the loss of some of our letters, and said much about the insidious deeds of certain men, whom he considered tools and agents of the hidden beings. Most of all, he suspected the surly farmer, Walter Brown, who lived alone on a run-down hillside place near the deep woods, and who was often seen loafing around corners in Brattleboro, Bellows Falls, New Fane, and South Londonderry, in the most inexplicable and seemingly unmotivated way. Brown's voice, he felt convinced, was one of those he had overheard on a certain occasion in a very terrible conversation, and he had once found a footprint or clawprint near Brown's house which might possess the most ominous significance. It had been curiously near some of Brown's own footprints—footprints that faced toward it. So the record was shipped from Brattleboro, whither Akeley drove in his Ford car along the lonely Vermont back roads. He confessed, in an accompanying note, that he was beginning to be afraid of those roads, and that he would not even go into Townsend for supplies now, except in broad daylight. It did not pay, he repeated again and again, to know too much, unless one were very remote from those silent and problematical hills. He would be going to California pretty soon to live with his son, though it was hard to leave a place where all one's memories and ancestral feelings centred. Before trying the record on the commercial machine which I borrowed from the college administration building, I carefully went over all the explanatory matter in Akeley's various letters. This record, he had said, was obtained about 1 a.m. on the 1st of May, 1915, near the closed mouth of a cave where the wooded west slope of Dark Mountain rises out of Lee Swamp. The place had always been unusually plagued with strange voices, this being the reason he had brought the phonograph, dictaphone, and blank in expectation of results. Former experience had told him that Maeve, the hideous Sabbath night of underground European legend, would probably be more fruitful than any other date, and he was not disappointed. It was noteworthy, though, that he never again heard voices at that particular spot. Unlike most of the overheard forest voices, the substance of the record was quasi-ritualistic, and included one palpably human voice which Akeley had never been able to place. It was not Brown's, but seemed to be that of a man of greater cultivation. The second voice, however, was the real crux of the thing, for this was the accursed buzzing, which had no likeness to humanity, despite the human words which it uttered in good English grammar and a scholarly accent. The recording phonograph and dictaphone had not worked uniformly well, and had of course been at a great disadvantage because of the remote and muffled nature of the overheard ritual, so that the actual speech secured was very fragmentary. Akeley had given me a transcript of what he believed the spoken words to be, and I glanced through this again as I prepared the machine for action. The text was darkly mysterious rather than openly horrible, though a knowledge of its origin and manner of gathering gave it all the associative horror which any words could well possess. I will present it here in full as I remember it, and I am fairly confident that I know it correctly by heart, 
not only from reading the transcript, but from playing the record itself over and over again. It is not a thing which one might readily forget. Is the Lord of the Woods even too? And the gifts of the men of Leng? So from the wells of night to the gulfs of space, and from the gulfs of space to the wells of night, ever the praises of great Cthulhu, of Sathagua, and of him who is not to be named, ever their praises and abundance to the black goat of the woods. Yah, Shabnagurath, the goat with a thousand young. Yah, Shabnagurath, the black goat of the woods with a thousand young. And it has come to pass that the Lord of the Woods, being seven and nine down the onyx steps, tributes to him in the gulf Azathoth, he of whom thou hast taught us marvels, on the wings of night out beyond space, out beyond the that whereof Yagoth is the youngest child, rolling alone in black ether at the rim. Go out among men and find the ways thereof, that he in the gulf may know. To Nyarlathotep, mighty messenger, must all things be told. And he shall put on the semblance of men, the waxen mask and the robe that hides, and come down from the world of seven sons to mock. Nyarlathotep! Great messenger, bringer of strange joy to your goth through the void, father of the million favoured ones, stalker among. Such were the words for which I was to listen when I started the phonograph. It was with a trace of genuine dread and reluctance that I pressed the lever and heard the preliminary scratching of the sapphire point, and I was glad that the first faint, fragmentary words were in a human voice, a mellow, educated voice which seemed vaguely Bostonian in accent, and which was certainly not that of any native of the Vermont hills. As I listened to the tantalizingly feeble rendering, I seemed to find the speech identical with Akeley's carefully prepared transcript. On it chanted, in that mellow Bostonian voice, Yah, Shabnagurath, the goat with a thousand young. And then I heard the other voice. To this hour I shudder retrospectively when I Think of how it struck me, prepared though I was by Akeley's accounts. Those to whom I have since described the record profess to find nothing but cheap imposture or madness in it, but could they have heard the accursed thing itself, or read the bulk of Akeley's correspondence, especially that terrible and encyclopedic second letter, I know they would think differently. It is, after all, a tremendous pity that I did not disobey Akeley and play the record for others. A tremendous pity, too, that all of his letters were lost. To me, with my first-hand impression of the actual sounds, and with my knowledge of the background and surrounding circumstances, the voice was a monstrous thing. It swiftly followed the human voice in ritualistic response, but in my imagination it was a morbid echo, winging its way across unimaginable abysses from unimaginable outer hells. It is more than two years now since I last ran off that blasphemous waxen cylinder, but at this moment, and at all other moments, I can still hear that feeble, fiendish buzzing as it reached me for the first time. Yah, Shabnigurath, the black goat of the woods with a thousand young. But though that voice is always in my ears, I have not even yet been able to analyze it well enough for a graphic description. It was like the drone of some 
loathsome, gigantic insect, ponderously shaped into the articulate speech of an alien species, and I am perfectly certain that the organs producing it can have no resemblance to the vocal organs of men, or indeed to those of any of the mammalia. There were singularities in timbre, range, and overtones which placed this phenomenon wholly outside the sphere of humanity and earth life. Its sudden advent that first time almost stunned me, and I heard the rest of the record through in a sort of abstracted daze. When the longer passage of buzzing came, there was a sharp intensification of that feeling of blasphemous infinity which had struck me during the shorter and earlier passage. At last, the record ended abruptly, during an unusually clear speech of the human and Bostonian voice, but I sat stupidly staring, long after the machine had automatically stopped. I hardly need say that I gave that shocking record many another playing, and that I made exhaustive attempts at analysis, and comment in comparing notes with Akeley. It would be both useless and disturbing to repeat here all that we concluded, but I may hint that we agreed in believing we had secured a clue to the source of some of the most repulsive primordial customs in the cryptic elder religions of mankind. It seemed plain to us, also, that there were ancient and elaborate alliances between the hidden outer creatures and certain members of the human race, how extensive these alliances were, and how their state today might compare with their state in earlier ages, we had no means of guessing, yet at best, there was room for a limitless amount of horrified speculation. There seemed to be an awful, immemorial linkage in several definite stages betwixt man and nameless infinity. The blasphemies which appeared on earth, it was hinted, came from the dark planet Yagoth, at the rim of the solar system, but this was itself merely the populous outpost of a frightful interstellar race whose ultimate source must lie far outside even the Einsteinian space-time continuum, or greatest known cosmos. Meanwhile, we continued to discuss the Black Stone, and the best way of getting it to Arkham, Akeley deeming it inadvisable to have me visit him at the scene of his nightmare studies. For some reason or other, Akeley was afraid to trust the thing to any ordinary or expected transportation route. His final idea was to take it across county to Bellows Falls, and ship it on the Boston and Maine system through Keene and Wichenden and Fitchburg, even though this would necessitate his driving along somewhat lonelier and more forest-traversing hill roads than the main highway to Brattleboro. He said he had noticed a man around the express office at Brattleboro when he had sent the phonograph record, whose actions and expression had been far from reassuring. This man had seemed too anxious to talk with the clerks, and had taken the train on which the record was shipped. Akeley confessed that he had not felt strictly at ease about that record, until he heard from me of its safe receipt. About this time, the second week in July, another letter of mine went astray, as I learned through an anxious communication from Akeley. After that, he told me to address him no more at Townsend, but to send all mail in care of the general delivery at Brattleboro whether he would make frequent trips either in his car or on the motor-coach line, which had lately replaced passenger service on the lagging branch railway. I could see that he was getting more and more anxious, for he went into much detail about the increased barking of the dogs on moonless nights, and about the fresh claw-prints he sometimes found in the road and in the mud at the back of his farmyard when morning came. Once, 
he told me about a veritable army of prints drawn up in a line facing an equally thick and resolute line of dog tracks, and sent a loathsomely disturbing Kodak picture to prove it. That was after a night on which the dogs had outdone themselves in barking and howling. On the morning of Wednesday, July 18th, I received a telegram from Bellows Falls, in which Akeley said he was expressing the Blackstone over the B&M on train number 5508, leaving Bellows Falls at 12.15 p.m. standard time, and due at the North Station in Boston at 4.12 p.m. It ought, I calculated, to get up to Arkham at least by the next noon, and accordingly I stayed in all Thursday morning to receive it. But noon came and went, without its advent, and when I telephoned down to the express office, I was informed that no shipment for me had arrived. My next act, performed amidst a growing alarm, was to give a long-distance call to the express agent at the Boston North Station, and I was scarcely surprised to learn that my consignment had not appeared. Train number 5508 had pulled in only thirty-five minutes late on the day before, but it contained no box addressed to me. The agent promised, however, to institute a searching inquiry, and I ended the day by sending Akeley a night letter outlining the situation. With commendable promptness, a report came from the Boston office on the following afternoon, the agent telephoning as soon as he learned the facts. It seemed that the railway express clerk on number 5508 had been able to recall an incident which might have much bearing on my loss—an argument with a very curious-voiced man, lean, sandy, and rustic-looking, when the train was waiting at Keene, New Hampshire, shortly after one o'clock, standard time. The man, he said, was greatly excited about a heavy box which he claimed to expect, but which was neither on the train nor entered on the company's books. He had given the name of Stanley Adams, and had had such a queerly thick droning voice that it made the clerk abnormally dizzy and sleepy to listen to him. The clerk could not remember quite how the conversation had ended, but recalled starting into a fuller awakeness when the train began to move. The Boston agent added, that this clerk was a young man of wholly unquestioned veracity and reliability, of known antecedents, and long with the company. That evening, I went to Boston to interview the clerk in person, having obtained his name and address from the office. He was a frank, prepossessing fellow, but I saw that he could add nothing to his original account. Oddly, he was scarcely sure that he could even recognize the strange inquirer again. Realizing that he had no more to tell, I returned to Arkham, and sat up till morning, writing letters to Akeley, to the express company, and to the police department and station agent in Keene. I felt that the strange-voiced man who had so queerly affected the clerk must have a pivotal place in the ominous business, and hoped that Keene station employees and telegraph office records might tell something about him, and about how he happened to make his inquiry when and where he did. I must admit, however, that all my investigations came to nothing. The queer-voiced man had indeed been noticed around the Keene station in the early afternoon of July 18th, and one lounger seemed to couple him vaguely with a heavy box, but he was altogether unknown, and had not been seen before or since. He had not visited the telegraph office, or received any message, so far as could be learned, nor had any message which might justly be considered a notice of the Blackstone's presence on number 5508, come through the office for anyone. Naturally, Akeley joined with me in conducting these inquiries, 
and even made a personal trip to Keene to question the people around the station, but his attitude toward the matter was more fatalistic than mine. He seemed to find the loss of the box a portentous and menacing fulfilment of inevitable tendencies, and had no real hope at all of its recovery. He spoke of the undoubted telepathic and hypnotic powers of the hill creatures and their agents, and in one letter hinted that he did not believe the stone was on this earth any longer. For my part, I was duly enraged, for I had felt there was at least a chance of learning profound and astonishing things from the old, blurred hieroglyphs. The matter would have rankled bitterly in my mind, but not Akeley's immediate subsequent letters brought up a new phase of the whole horrible hill problem, which at once seized all my attention. 4. The Unknown Things, Akeley wrote in a script grown pitifully tremulous, had begun to close in on him with a wholly new degree of determination. The nocturnal barking of the dogs whenever the moon was dim or absent was hideous now, and there had been attempts to molest him on the lonely roads he had to traverse by day. On the 2nd of August, while bound for the village in his car, he had found a tree trunk laid in his path at a point where the highway ran through a deep patch of woods, while the savage barking of the two great dogs he had with him told all too well of the things which must have been lurking near. What would have happened had the dogs not been there, he did not dare guess, but he never went out now without at least two of his faithful and powerful pack. Other road experiences had occurred on August 5th and 6th, a shot grazing his car on one occasion, and the barking of the dogs telling of unholy woodland presences on the other. On August 15th, I received a frantic letter, which disturbed me greatly, and which made me wish Akeley could put aside his lonely reticence and call in the aid of the law. There had been frightful happenings on the night of the 12th, 13th, bullets flying outside the farmhouse, and three of the twelve great dogs being found shot dead in the morning. There were myriads of claw prints in the road, with the human prints of Walter Brown among them. Akeley had started to telephone to Brattleboro for more dogs, but the wire had gone dead before he had a chance to say much. Later, he went to Brattleboro in his car, and learned there that Lineman had found the main telephone cable neatly cut at a point where it ran through the deserted hills north of Newfane. But he was about to start home with four fine new dogs and several cases of ammunition for his big-game repeating rifle. The letter was written at the post office in Brattleboro, and came through to me without delay. My attitude toward the matter was by this time quickly slipping from a scientific to an alarmedly personal one. I was afraid for Akeley, in his remote, lonely farmhouse, and half afraid for myself because of my now definite connection with the strange hill problem. The thing was reaching out so. Would it suck me in and engulf me? In replying to his letter, I urged him to seek help, and hinted that I might take action myself if he did not. I spoke of visiting Vermont in person, in spite of his wishes, and of helping him explain the situation to the proper authorities. In return, however, I received only a telegram from Bellows Falls, which read thus, Appreciate your position, but can do nothing. Take no action yourself, for it could only harm both. Wait for explanation. Henry Akeley. But the affair was steadily deepening. Upon my replying to the telegram, I received a shaky note from Akeley, with the astonishing news that he had not only never sent the wire, but had not received the letter from me to which it was an obvious reply. 
hasty inquiries by him at Bellows Falls had brought out that the message was deposited by a strange sandy-haired man with a curiously thick, droning voice, though more than this he could not learn. The clerk shoot him the original text as scrawled in pencil by the sender, but the handwriting was wholly unfamiliar. It was noticeable that the signature was misspelled A-K-E-L-Y, without the second E. Certain conjectures were inevitable, but amidst the obvious crisis, he did not stop to elaborate upon them. He spoke of the death of more dogs, and the purchase of still others, and of the exchange of gunfire which had become a settled feature each moonless night. Brown's prince, and the prince of at least one or two more shod human figures, were now found regularly among the claw prints in the road, and at the back of the farmyard. It was, Akeley admitted, a pretty bad business, and before long, he would probably have to go to live with his California son, whether or not he could sell the old place. But it was not easy to leave the only spot one could really think of as home. He must try to hang on a little longer. Perhaps he could scare off the intruders, especially if he openly gave up all further attempts to penetrate their secrets. Writing Akeley at once, I renewed my offers of aid, and spoke again of visiting him and helping him convince the authorities of his dire peril. In his reply, he seemed less set against that plan, and his past attitude would have led one to predict, but said he would like to hold off a little while longer, long enough to get his things in order, and reconcile himself to the idea of leaving an almost morbidly cherished birthplace. People looked askance at his studies and speculations, and it would be better to get quietly off without setting the countryside in a turmoil and creating widespread doubts of his own sanity. He had had enough, he admitted, but he wanted to make a dignified exit if he could. This letter reached me on the 28th of August, and I prepared and mailed as encouraging a reply as I could. Apparently the encouragement had effect, for Akeley had fewer terrors to report when he acknowledged my note. He was not very optimistic, though, and expressed the belief that it was only the full moon season which was holding the creatures off. He hoped there would not be many densely cloudy nights, and talked vaguely of boarding in Brattleboro when the moon waned. Again I wrote him encouragingly, but on September 5th there came a fresh communication which had obviously crossed my letter in the mails, and to this I could not give any such hopeful response. In view of its importance, I believe I had better give it in full, as best I can do from memory of the shaky script. It ran substantially as follows. Monday. Dear Wilmarth, a rather discouraging P.S. to my last. Last night was thickly cloudy, though no rain, and not a bit of moonlight got through. Things were pretty bad, and I think the end is getting near, in spite of all we have hoped. After midnight, uh, uh, something landed on the roof of the house, and the dogs all rushed up to see what it was. I could hear them snapping and tearing around, and then one managed to get on the roof by jumping from the low L. There was a terrible fight up there, and I heard a frightful buzzing which I'll never forget, and then there was a shocking smell. About the same time, bullets came through the window and nearly grazed me. I think the main line of the hill creatures had got close to the house when the dogs divided because of the roof business. What was up there, I don't know yet but I'm afraid the creatures are learning to steer better with their space wings. I put out the light and used the windows for loopholes, and raked all around the house with rifle fire, aimed just high enough not to hit the dogs. That seemed to end the business, but in the morning I found great pools of blood in the yard, beside pools of a green sticky stuff 
that had the worst odor I have ever smelled. I climbed up on the roof and found more of the sticky stuff there. Five of the dogs were killed. I am afraid I hit one by aiming too low, for he was shot in the back. Now I am setting the panes the shots broke, and I'm going to Brattleboro for more dogs. I guess the men at the kennels think I'm crazy. We'll drop another note later. Suppose I'll be ready for moving in a week or two, though it nearly kills me to think of it. Hastily, Akeley. But this was not the only letter from Akeley to cross mine. On the next morning, September 6th, still another came, this time a frantic scrawl which utterly unnerved me, and put me at a loss what to say or do next. Again, I cannot do better than quote the text as faithfully as memory will let me. Tuesday. Clouds didn't break, so no moon again, and going into the wane anyhow. I'd have the house wired for electricity and put in a searchlight if I didn't know they'd cut the cables as fast as they could be mended. I think I am going crazy. It may be that all I have ever written you is a dream or madness. It was bad enough before, but this time it is too much. They talked to me last night, talked in that cursed buzzing voice, and told me things that I dare not repeat to you. I heard them plainly over the barking of the dogs, and once, when they were drowned out, a human voice helped them. Keep out of this, Wilmarth. It is worse than either you or I ever suspected. They don't mean to let me get to California now. They want to take me off alive, or what theoretically and mentally amounts to alive, not only to your goth, but beyond that, away outside the galaxy, and possibly beyond the last curved rim of space. I told them I wouldn't go where they wish, or in the terrible way they propose to take me, but I'm afraid it will be no use. My place is so far out that they may come by day as well as by night before long. Six more dogs killed, and I felt presences all along the wooded parts of the road when I drove to Brattleboro today. It was a mistake for me to try to send you that phonograph record and Blackstone. Better smash the record before it's too late. We'll drop you another line tomorrow, if I'm still here. Wish I could arrange to get my books and things to Brattleboro and board there. I would run off without anything if I could, but something inside my mind holds me back. I can slip out to Brattleboro, where I ought to be safe, but I feel just as much a prisoner there as at the house, and I seem to know that I couldn't get much farther, even if I dropped everything and tried. It is horrible. Don't get mixed up in this. Yours, Akeley. I did not sleep at all the night after receiving this terrible thing, and was utterly baffled as to Akeley's remaining degree of sanity. The substance of the note was wholly insane, yet the manner of expression— in view of all that had gone before, had a grimly potent quality of convincingness. I made no attempt to answer it, thinking it better to wait until Akeley might have time to reply to my latest communication. Such a reply indeed came, on the following day, though the fresh material in it quite overshadowed any of the points brought up by the letter it nominally answered. Here is what I recall of the text, scrawled and blotted as it was in the course of a plainly frantic and hurried composition. Wednesday. W. Your letter came, but it's no use to discuss anything any more. I am fully resigned. Wonder that I have even enough willpower left to fight them off. Can't escape even if I were willing to give up everything and run. They'll get me. Had a letter from them yesterday. RFD man brought it while I was at Brattleboro. Typed and postmarked Bellows Falls. Tells what they want to do with me. I can't repeat it. Look out for yourself, too. Smash that record. Cloudy nights keep up. 
and moon waning all the time. Wish I dared to get help. It might brace up my willpower. But everyone who would dare to come at all would call me crazy, unless there happened to be some proof. Couldn't ask people to come for no reason at all. I'm all out of touch with everybody, and have been for years. But I haven't told you the worst, Wilmarth. Brace up to read this, for it will give you a shock. I am telling the truth, though. It is this. I have seen and touched one of the things, or part of one of the things. God, man! But it's awful! It was dead, of course. One of the dogs had it, and I found it near the kennel this morning. I tried to save it in the woodshed to convince people of the whole thing, but it all evaporated in a few hours. Nothing left. You know, all those things in the rivers were seen only on the first morning after the flood. And here's the worst. I tried to photograph it for you, but when I developed the film, there wasn't anything visible except the woodshed. What can the thing have been made of? I saw it and felt it, and they all leave footprints. It was surely made of matter. But what kind of matter? The shape can't be described. It was a great crab, with a lot of pyramided fleshy rings, or knots of thick, ropey stuff covered with feelers where a man's head would be. That green sticky stuff is its blood or juice, and there are more of them due on earth any minute. Walter Brown is missing. Hasn't been seen loafing around any of his usual corners in the villages hereabouts. I must have got him with one of my shots, though the creatures always seem to try to take their dead and wounded away. Got into town this afternoon without any trouble, but I'm afraid they're beginning to hold off because they're sure of me. I'm writing this in Brattleboro, P.O. This may be goodbye. If it is, write my son, George Goodenough Akeley, 176 Pleasant Street, San Diego, California. But don't come up here. Write the boy if you don't hear from me in a week, and watch the papers for news. I'm going to play my last two cards now, if I have the willpower left. First, to try poison gas on the things. I've got the right chemicals and have fixed up masks for myself and the dogs. And then, if that doesn't work, tell the sheriff. They can lock me in a madhouse if they want to. It'll be better than what the other creatures would do. Perhaps I can get them to pay attention to the prints around the house. They're faint, but I can find them every morning. Suppose, though, police would say I faked them somehow, for they all think I'm a queer character. Must try to have a state policeman spend a night here and see for himself— though it would be just like the creatures to learn about it and hold off that night. They cut my wires whenever I try to telephone in the night. The line men think it is very queer, and may testify for me. They don't go and imagine I cut them myself. I haven't tried to keep them repaired for over a week now. I could get some of the ignorant people to testify for me about the reality of the horrors, but everybody laughs at what they say. And anyway, they have shunned my place for so long that they don't know any of the new events." You couldn't get one of those run-down farmers to come within a mile of my house for love or money. The mail carrier hears what they say and jokes me about it. God, if I only dared tell him how real it is. I think I'll try to get him to notice the prince, but he comes in the afternoon and they're usually about gone by that time. If I kept one by setting a box or pan over it, he'd think surely it was a fake or joke. Wish I hadn't gotten to be such a hermit, so folks don't drop around as they used to. I've never dared shoo the Blackstone or the Kodak pictures or play that record to anybody but the ignorant people. The others would say I fake the whole business and do nothing but laugh. But I may yet try shooing the pictures. They give those claw prints clearly, even if the things that made them can't be photographed. What a shame nobody else saw that thing this morning before it went to nothing. 
But I don't know as I care. After what I've been through, a madhouse is as good a place as any. The doctors can help me make up my mind to get away from this house, and that is all that will save me. Write my son George if we don't hear soon. Goodbye. Smash that record. And don't mix up in this. Yours, Akeley. The letter frankly plunged me into the blackest of terror. I did not know what to say in answer, but scratched off some incoherent words of advice and encouragement, and sent them by registered mail. I recall urging Akeley to move to Brattleboro at once, and place himself under the protection of the authorities, adding that I would come to that town with a phonograph record and help convince the courts of his sanity. It was time to, I think I wrote, to alarm the people generally against this thing in their midst. It will be observed that at this moment of stress, my own belief in all Akeley had told and claimed was virtually complete, though I did think his failure to get a picture of the dead monster was due not to any freak of nature, but to some excited slip of his own.' 